Open up your Bibles to Matthew 19. And I was going through and putting this outline together and recording a lot of those older sermons from uh, six, seven months ago. And I realized that this is the first outline in our study of the Lord's ministry, probably since I got here, where we have parallel accounts to consider. We've spent most of our time together in Luke, um, but we have two accounts to consider here. So if you're looking at the outline, this might be the first time you've ever seen it, but I give you both. So the first one's Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. And the second one is Mark 10, verses 1 through 12. And since this is our first time to do this together, you can look at either one that you want. I'm still going to read to you that which I want to read to you in the same points. Uh, but both accounts are parallel. So we remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic Gospels because they line up at points. They all come together. John's account is also a Gospel account. It's parallel in many ways, but it's not synoptic in the same manner. Um, so we, when we do see crossover, it's typically Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Luke, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and sometimes we'll get a verse or two from John in which we can sequence things, uh, which we may have had that before together. But this is the first time where we've actually had pure parallels. So it is a bit repetitious. Usually in the outlines, I will underline what is different between the two. Uh, I did not do that this time because until this moment, I had forgotten that I used to do that. So... Sorry, those listening wouldn't have seen the underlines anyway. So it's a wonderful experience we all get to share together. But we look today at teaching concerning divorce. Teaching concerning divorce. It's still in Perea, which is that land in between. Once more, the land beyond is specifically what Perea means. And I flipped the map to one that's not as torn up. But you can see, it says on the map literally, beyond the river which is significant because that's the beyond the Jordan, beyond uh, the area of Jerusalem in which a lot of his ministry takes place. That's what that Perea means. So we'll start with the Matthew account, Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read the first 12 verses. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? This is more familiar than what we talked about this morning, right? We're used to this. Pharisees bringing in a trap for Jesus. Whereas this morning, we saw the opposite of him healing one who was used as a bit of a snare, but to reveal some things to the Pharisees and to the synagogue. Going on in the text, it says, And, and Jesus answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, they are no more two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man, or let not man, put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. It's a very important verse. And if you mark your Bibles, you might underline and highlight and circle that. These same, we've said it before, but the same snares the devil came up with during the Lord's ministry are the same ones today. Believe me, when I looked in my outline and saw this was the topic we were going to discuss, you feel the weight of these snares. Because divorce is still a hot-button subject today. 
The woman caught in the act of adultery planted in the middle of Jesus' teaching, still a hot button today, is it not? Satan wasn't pulling punches with the Lord Jesus, and he won't pull punches with us. We can't steer away from these subjects. We can't uh, avoid them or just say, you all know what Jesus said. Let's move on to the more exciting events, the cross. We have to deal with this subject matter. And then he says, I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, if the case of the, if the, case of the man be so with his wife, it is, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, all men cannot receive this same, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs, and you might recall from our Genesis study, this means a castrated man, such as Potiphar, from the Potiphar and wife episode of Genesis. He was a castrated man. He was a eunuch, dedicated to the work that he had. It says, For there are some eunuchs, there are some castrated men, which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now if we turn over to Mark chapter 10, we'll see his account. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of Judea by the farther side of Jordan. And the people resort unto him again. And as uh, as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? Tempting him. So here we see revealed. If I were underlining text, we would underline those two words. It's revealed in Mark's account. They're tempting him. This is indeed a trap. And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. It's interesting the way it's phrased here because Moses did not command divorce. The way it's phrased in Matthew 19, they talk about Moses commanded a bill of divorcement. And what Moses did command, and we'll look at that text in a minute, is that it's made official. If a divorce is taking place, if a woman is separated, a wife separated from her husband, then he gave commandment that a bill of divorcement be written, that it be expressed, that it be made known. And what we see here is a little bit more clarity, that Moses commanded uh, and Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. It's not totally the same, but we'll dive into this a little deeper in a moment. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart, he wrote you this precept. Now that part is the same in Matthew and Mark's account. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. And they twain shall be one flesh. So then there are no more twain, or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again, of the same matter. That is again something different that we see between Matthew and Mark's account. Mark makes it clear they're separated. So it's not everyone that was trapping him and everyone he was talking to before, but now the disciples have come to him in the house. They've come to him separate from the teaching that he was expressing before when the people had resorted unto him earlier in the chapter. And Jesus saith unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another, committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. So as I mentioned, this is, this is the first, it's actually the first lesson that we've had in this study since February of last year in which we've had parallel accounts. 
Uh, th this particular study has been in Luke, locked in Luke for that long. And I know most of the time that I've been here, uh, we've been in Luke, but it, it's been that long. That subject, if you're looking through the outlines uh, on the audio files, it was Jesus' life on earth, the cost of discipleship. And then I even put in the title in brackets, the first of many on the subject. I did that in February. I only give you the title because now you know how long it's been. He's been teaching discipleship for uh, for us. It's been almost a full year of studies on what discipleship looks like. That's how important it is. A lot has happened since that lesson was preached. And interestingly enough, this is our first time back in Matthew or Mark since we were teaching in February on that subject. This event leads our Lord to deal with a subject that even then was loaded with strife and emotion. A lot like homosexuality. For all ages, the strife and emotion involved with divorce, adultery, uh, homosexuality, man's traditions, with or without the salt and pepper of pagan holidays, man's tradition has always riled the believer and non-believer alike. But here's the question. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife? And in Matthew's account, they say for every cause. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? We should be careful as we approach this lesson to not be caught up in the same drama they were looking to create. The devil gave them this question to ask of the Lord Jesus Christ. It didn't trip him up. And as we have the scriptures before us, we should be careful to make sure it doesn't trip us up. He gave us an answer. It was a hot-button issue then, and it's a hot-button issue now. We'll not be creating any new truth with our study today, only teaching how the Lord handled yet another attempt to trap him. The very first point we need to address is that man was not created to find a way or reason to separate that which God had united. When Jesus answers a lot of these difficult questions, he goes right back to the beginning, that precious book we're about to wrap up, Genesis. That's how important the book of beginnings is. All these questions they're asking him 5,000 years later, God had already made all that clear. So clear, in fact, that multiple chroniclers put that book together, giving us the accounts of Adam through Joseph. And all of the answers are literally right there. The answer to the homosexuality hot-button question in Genesis. How's God feel about it? He judges him. How does God feel about the sin on the earth, the, the, the ability for man's imagination to only think of evil continually? He judged it. He didn't like it at all. How did God feel about Cain and Abel's situation when Cain didn't bring forth a, a fit sacrifice acceptable unto God and he took his revenge out on his brother who did? God settled it. He said, your brother's blood cries out from the earth for what you have done. Genesis is a most precious book. And I am of the absolute certainty know that the, Lord, the devil would love to destroy this book, but I'm certain he'd love to destroy Genesis. Think of the promises laid out in Genesis. We don't love Genesis 3 because that's where the fall happens, but the promise happens there too, right at the end of that chapter. So he goes right back to the beginning and he says, man and woman were created for each other. We see that in Genesis 2. Man was to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. And yes, that principle was set up in Genesis 2 as well. Even though Adam didn't have mother and father, God was very clear through those who pinned the, uh, the, the statements of how creation began to make sure it was expressed that man and woman were as one. 
not one with offshoots, not one with branches that dictate and step in and intermingle, and not man and man, and not woman and woman. Adam didn't have options. He had a woman. That kind of comes out wrong, but I think you understand what I mean. The word cleave is defined as to glue upon or glue to, to join oneself too closely, to cleave to, to stick to. They are to be so close that they are no more two but one. Some marriages won't work because man has forgotten for whom to leave and for whom to cleave. Hear me, gentlemen. We lead our homes. That truth doesn't change for this lesson any more than any other lesson. There are those we are called to leave and those we are called to cleave. And the Lord works the same way he has with the necrotizing fasciitis, the black mold, and everything else. Clean, cut, test. Clean, cut, test. Over and over and over again. As everything's orchestrated together by the providence of God, those he cares for, he continues to teach or chasten. Other marriages don't work because he or she kept only themselves at the heart of their decisions rather than God first, which ties in with what we talked about last Sunday. The second thing to draw out of this event is what did Moses do? It seems like they're a little confused. And in, in, in other texts, even the ones we read this morning, there are those who got riled up and said, we're sons of Moses to this blind man that can now see. How many, how many blind men did Moses make to see? If I read my Bible right, and we'll see it soon as we go into Exodus, Moses said, I can't go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go. My tongue is dumb. It can't do the things you're asking me to do. How can I do what you're asking of me, fiery, thorny bush? You see, Moses was used of the Lord. He wasn't God. So what did Moses do? Understanding he wasn't God. Our text says that Moses permitted not commanded, he permitted divorce. I like to come to another parallel. When the nation of Israel, and we're a long way from getting to this point of, of our studies of the Old Testament as we're tracking down the promised seed, but the nation of Israel, when they got outside knocking distance of the promised land, they'd already gone through so much, the bitter waters of Mara and so on and so on and so on. But they get there and somebody in the back says, let's send down some scouts to check out the promised land. <laughs> Which, if you tried to explain, if this man were called for it to explain why he makes this suggestion, the only way he can defend it is, well, to see if God's right about it. Mm. To see if it's what God said it was. God did not command for scouts to go in, but he permitted it. And what happened? Two of the scouts came back and said, it's ours. God be with us. That's our land. The others brought back an evil report. I like to come back to that because it's important that we understand that this was permitted too, not commanded. Permitted. God knows the trouble that will come with the things he's permitted, but he permitted it. Note how their appeal to the Lord Jesus in Matthew's account says, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? They weren't going to fool Jesus with their reckless use of scriptures, and we aren't either. In this day and age, divorce is rampant, and it's everywhere. But if we choose to recklessly use scripture to defend that concept to God, it won't work. He created marriage. 
And think about it. When we see the idea of divorce, we're literally appealing to him that created marriage and said, you got this one wrong. We're going to tear the one into two again. It isn't to be looked at as anything lighter than that. So what did Moses do? Turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 24 so that we can see it. Deuteronomy 24. This isn't one of those obscure problems like, what do I do with a leper? This is something you don't need to see because if you haven't seen divorce in your life yet, you may one day. Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, already much of America will get riled up at the idea that a man has taken a wife, but he's the head of the house. If we don't have the right starting point, we're not going to get this lesson. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. And if the latter husband hate her, and write her a bill of divorcement, and giveth it her in her hand, and sendeth her out of his house, or if the latter husband die, which took her to be his wife, her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife, after that she is defiled. For that is abomination before the Lord, and thou shalt not cause the land to sin, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. What the Israelites were, as voices in the wilderness as a traveling nation of under God's watchful care on their way back to the promised land. What they were and what they pictured was very important. There's a reason that we can turn to a place in Scripture in which we see this same Moses didn't get to enter into the promised land. It's because all of the typology of that, of that travel, of those events, was very, very, very important. When the Lord says to speak to a rock, when the Lord says to smite a rock, uh, even if it still provides water, it's important you did what he said to do. We, we, we get all mixed up in our head and we say, Christianity, close enough. It's not close enough. Beloved, if it was that important in the Old Testament, when there were way less humans to mess it up, and it was that important that he do exactly what was commanded of him to do, we need to take this book more seriously. We need to take what is commanded of us way more seriously. It's important we realize why Moses gave this law and what the law really stated. Moses did not command divorce. Christ said that God permitted it. In the, in the present day, again, another situation where there's even more to say here than what we're going to get to. In this present day situation, looking at the event of what they're bringing before Jesus, there's two camps, each with a rabbi at the top of it. Rabbi Hillel, at the time, interpreted Deuteronomy 24.1 to mean that a man could divorce his wife for any cause. That's why it's worded the way it is in Matthew. While the followers of Rabbi Shemai at that time held to a strict interpretation that marriage could be broken only by adultery. Jesus went beyond the rabbis and even beyond the law and reminded the people of the original law of marriage established in Eden. You know, this whole thing I just read to you about the two opposing rabbis. I could have entered any two opposing Baptist preachers' names because it continues and continues and continues. I won't do it, 
for the sake of the recordings that we have going on. But you could fill in those blanks. Brother so-and-so versus brother so-and-so. What's a justified divorce and what's not? What's really important? The idea of discernment is that you are answering that question. What's really important? That brother Hillel or brother Shammai is right. Neither one. The direct answer to their question is in our text. Verse 8 is because of the hardness of your heart. Why did Moses uh, allow it? Why did Moses quote-unquote command it? It was because of the hardness of your heart. So the sin that we're dealing with, according to Jesus, isn't divorce. It's the hardness of your heart. It's the root of all these sins. Moses did command that the divorced woman be given a bill of divorcement to protect her and to make it more difficult for the man to divorce her in the heat of anger and literally to protect her from violence as a result of it. The woman was forbidden to return to her first husband, but she could marry another man. The phrase, some uncleanness, literally means a matter of nakedness, and it suggests immorality on the part of the woman, according to Leviticus chapter 18, which Jesus speaks to in the text as well. Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away doth commit adultery. This divorce law was a temporary one for Israel. This is another important fact. It was not a permanent one for all the world. It was a temporarily permitted law for the nation of Israel, but it has been co-opted as a permanent rule or, or law for the world. Thirdly, what did God do? What did God do? God instituted marriage in Eden. Long before the Mosaic Law, the Bible gives at least four purposes for marriage. We have to understand the purposes of marriage as well as the typology of marriage to understand why the devil's attacking it the way that he still is today. The first purpose of marriage was to continue the race. Genesis 1 verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. The second great purpose for marriage is for companionship and enjoyment. In Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. I will make for him. We can't argue with the text. The third important purpose to marriage is to avoid fornication. Paul speaks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Brother Paul says, Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with, constant, or with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again. Now, of course, we understand here, he's, he's not saying defraud ye not one another, except it be consent for a time. It's disgusting we even have to say it, but he is not saying be faithful to one another unless the other one says it's okay for a small amount of time. He's saying defraud one another, meaning hold back 
not from the other, that which you are married for. I mean, you are consenting individuals married to one another. And her body is under your power and your body is under her power. Defraud back or hold back not from one another, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. We can't separate fasting and prayer from what he's actually talking about here. And then come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. And Paul knew exactly why he had to add that in at the end because that's what we're dealing with now. And fifthly, I can't count. Fourthly, there's only four purposes I mentioned, so I should only give you four. The fourth purpose of marriage, to show the relationship between Christ and his church. This is the typology. A typology, Christians, hear me. This is the hard part. A typology that as Christians, we should labor to protect. To show the relationship between Christ and his church as represented by marriage. Ephesians 5, verses 22, 23, and 24. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. In this point alone, we can find Satan's greatest reason to attack marriage. It deteriorates man's perception of what the church is to Christ. If we no longer understand what marriage should be, then that picture is distorted. We're not even looking in a glass darkly anymore. But we are indeed reflecting upon our image and not God's. God's original purpose was that one man should wed one woman and only death should break that union. I personally believe that's a picture of our membership into the Lord's church. I know that we say there's only a couple ways out of the church, death and letter. I'm going to tell you, letter was permitted, not commanded. I'm not saying it's a bad thing to let her out of one church into another. But it was permitted, not commanded. Romans 7, verses 1 through 3. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. For the woman which hath had, with hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. Remember the picture. The church is bound to her husband. The church is bound to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is adultery for the church to follow any other, including the pastor, before following Christ. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from the law, from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Christ Jesus was not conquered by death. The Lord's church should indeed be married to him for life. Marriage is not just a physical union. It ought to be a union of minds and hearts too. The marriage union is even stronger than family ties for a man is to leave father and mother and cleave to his wife. It is a sacred union for Jesus said that God joins a man and woman together. He ordained it. Lastly, what were the Pharisees trying to do? We have to ask this question. What were they trying to pull here? What was the game? 
What was the end game for what they were trying to accomplish here? Nowhere in the text does it say that divorce was to be used to solve problems. Nor is there a promise anywhere in Scripture that indeed worse problems might not arise as a direct result of divorce being permitted. In fact, these that tried to appear so concerned what the law had to say regarding divorce did not seem so eager to follow it all the way to its conclusion. The law commanded that those who committed adultery be stoned. When's the last time somebody you knew that committed adultery was drug out and stoned? That's what the law says. Why don't we have Pharisees saying, well, let's execute it all the way to the law? Well, they did with the woman caught in the act of adultery, but where's the man? She wasn't doing it alone. You call that something different. And the man, this is Leviticus 20, verse 10, and the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. It had to be a slap in the face to the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Pharisees came in, dragging behind them that schoolmaster of the law and only quoting part of it. Can you imagine if he were more flesh than, than, than divinity? These guys don't listen. They misquote me all the time. They, they misquote me to me. I am that I am. I am him. I've, I've been around the whole time. You can't fool me with myself. They don't listen. And then they come in here with half a sentence and try to trap me with it. Well, this is exactly what the Pharisees are trying to do. We still find the same battles today. There is in every generation someone in Shammai's camp looking to start fights with somebody in Hillel's camp. We don't call it that anymore, though, do we? The generation before us called it so preacher so-and-so versus preacher so-and-so. And this generation we're in now will do it too. You see a type of birth pang happening right now where they're trying to identify who it's going to be versus who it's going to be. Not interested. You see, Jesus didn't enter into the realm, to the ring of this battle and say, well, I'm going to side with either one of them, did he? He says, I'm going to go all the way back the ramp. We're going to use wrestling as a metaphor here. All the way back up the ramp before you came out when the referee was in the ring announcing the rules, we're going to go back to what he was saying. Marriage should be man and woman. Two made one, and man is not to separate it. Can you imagine this Pharisees? Oh, wait a minute. We're allowed to separate it. And Jesus saying, that's not what my father said. That's not how it was created. Which side did Jesus take? He went right back to the center of God's will just like he does every single time they try to trap him. Listen to Ephesians 5. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 103. We're going to read that before we close, but for, for time's sake, you turn to Psalm 103, and I'm going to read to you Ephesians 5. Not trying to deceive you. I'll give you the verses. You can check me out. Ephesians 5, verses 25 through 33. But Psalm 103 is very important, and I want to end with that. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, Paul writes to this church that he had a lot of love for, according to Acts. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. You could almost hear the whiny husband, I don't want to love her! 
Well, of course they're not going to do that. Remember, I've teased this study of what lies at the center of God's will, and I've given you the example of well, what I need to do to be a perfect husband. Some of those things, I just don't want to do it, if we're being completely honest. But I know some of those things. And one of those things is I'm to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but Paul speaks concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. I love how Paul brings that back around, because this is very similar to how the Lord handled the situation of forgiveness. That very famous uh, set of scriptures where Paul or Simon Peter says, How oft shall I forgive my brother? Seven times. And Jesus, we know how he responds, but remember, before that event ends, he puts the charge back on the reader and the other people in the room. See to yourself, he says. Same thing here. Paul says, Nevertheless, let every one of you, in particular, he says, attention, you Gail Wyckoff, you Isaac Sitters, you David Thorne, and so on. Let every one of you so love your wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Because we can hear the verses before that and say, oh, Charlie's got to get it right. He's messing it up. But then when Paul or the Lord Jesus brings it back around and says, you might know somebody's messing it up, but you in particular, you do this. You in particular remember the commandment of the Lord and the picture that marriage is the church. Don't sit here right now and say, I know somebody who got a divorce and they're wrong. They're off. Listen to Psalm 103, verses 6 through 18. And this is where we'll close. And you might, you might want to mark this chapter when we're done with it. I don't know. I'm going to read part of it. But Psalm 103, verses 6 through 18. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. The Lord is slow to anger. The, the Lord is plenteous in mercy. The Lord will not always chide. Neither will the Lord keep his anger forever. The Lord hath not dealt with us after our sins. The Lord hath not rewarded us according to our iniquities. In other words, he hasn't treated us the way we should have been treated based on what we've inherited or what we've earned as wages. Verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a feather pitieth his children, father, like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Oh, there's a verse. I haven't circled it yet, but I'm circling it right now. He knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. 
As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over, and then it is gone. And the place thereof shall know it no more. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. You in particular remember these set of verses from Psalm 103. Subject like this one, subjects like this one are covered in the Bible, and it's not to rile us up or make us mad at the pastor or the teacher that presents them. They are also not here for us to skip past to a more convenient subject matter. Many times these subjects hurt because they bring with them layers of hurt and shame. But let's remember who God is, what God's done. Psalm 103 is a wonderful reminder of who God is and who God, what God has done. And He remembers our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And yet He is long-suffering and vastly merciful. Beloved, go and sin no more. You know, the one thing we don't see in this event, we don't see in this event that Jesus says divorce is the unpardonable sin. So before we walk out of here and think we need to chase after somebody, remember that. He is mightily merciful. He teaches us wrong from right. Not that we have a weapon to bash over somebody else's head but that we go and sin no more. That's the purpose behind this teaching. We've got to be very careful with these things.